Well, good morning, church. If you're new with us this morning, my name is Kevin. I'm your lead pastor, and I polled the dads over the last several weeks. I asked them if they could have any sermon that they could possibly want. What would they want? And they said, give me as deep a theological sermon as you could possibly write. And so I said, okay. And so uh, this morning, there's a good chance of uh, some of you, your brains are going to melt. Um, we have been walking through the book of Matthew together. And I say walking, some of you might say crawling. I say walking, we've been moving through it. And, and the passage we're going to look at this morning, on the surface level, seems pretty straightforward. Many of you have read the passage, but I would bet that you haven't lingered there very long. So if you have your Bible with me, and I hope you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And so for those that are new, we have been over the last several weeks giving you a timeline for these last moments of Jesus' life, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And so Jesus was arrested at 2 a.m. Thursday night. Friday morning early, you get the idea, 2 a.m. And he was arrested in the Garden of the Olive Press, the Garden of Gethsemane. Then between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m., Jesus experiences six different trials, all of them illegal. Three trials are, are performed by the religious community, and three trials are performed by the Romans. And in those trials, they spit on Jesus. They mock Jesus, they punch Jesus, they, they beat him, and they parade him back and forth between rulers. And by the way, all of that happens not just by the Romans. The very first people to spit on Jesus were religious people. The very first group to punch Jesus, to mock Jesus, wasn't the Roman soldiers, wasn't the pagans, it was the religious people. And then after two hours of flogging by the Roman soldiers, Jesus is led away to the cross at about 9 a.m. Friday morning. And he hangs on that cross for six hours. Six hours. And it says in verse 45 that darkness comes over the land. That's about noon. At about noon, darkness comes over the land. And so those first three hours are painful and terrible. And then at noon... Darkness comes over the land, physical darkness, spiritual darkness, emotional darkness, and it stays that way until 3 p.m. when he dies. Church, what happened to Jesus is gruesome and painful and terrible all the way around. But I thought Pastor James did a fantastic job of making sure we didn't get lost in what happened at the expense of why it happened. Because why it happened makes what happened maybe slightly more, uh, you can maybe stomach it maybe a little better. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin at all, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this morning, what we're going to see now is the rush is on. Remember, all of this is taking place on Friday. Jesus dies on the cross Friday at 3 p.m., and the Sabbath starts one hour before sunset. 
That's when the Sabbath starts. And so starting at about 6 p.m., the Sabbath starts. And so you can't work and you can't travel on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a time of rest and worship. It's a time of ceasing from labor. And the idea is that you're supposed to spend this time delighting in God. So if Jesus dies at 3 p.m., then it's only a matter of a couple of hours before everybody's going to have to go home, which means any preparation work, including the burial of Jesus, that's going to have to happen very, very quickly. You've only got three hours to get him off the cross, prepped in the tomb, prepped in the tomb, sealed, and get home before the Sabbath starts. So let's look at verse 57. This is what it says. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So the question we start with is, who is Joseph of Arimathea? Now, Joseph is a prominent member of the council here in Jerusalem, but he's a guy that did not support the plan to kill Jesus. In fact, John's gospel tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. In Mark's account of the same moment, it says that Joseph went boldly before Pilate. It says that he gathered up the courage to go before Pilate question is, well, why do you need courage? Why do you have to go boldly there? Well, he, Joseph, being a Jew, he, he's a follower of Jesus. He's following a Jew. And he's going to go to Pilate, who hates Jews, to ask Pilate for permission to take the body of Jesus, a Jew, accused and sentenced to death so that he could take that body and honor and bring respect to a Jew. That's not going to go well. That's just not going to go well. That's an incredibly insulting and shocking thing to do, especially under these circumstances. This guy's really bold. And so before Pilate will release the body, Pilate wants confirmation that Jesus is actually dead. The last thing Pilate needs is for Jesus to not die and a riot to break out in Jerusalem all while he's under investigation by Rome. So Mark's gospel says Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So according to this verse here and verse 59 in Matthew, Pilate orders that the body be given to Joseph. And to be clear, this burial process that they're about to embark on is not easy. And it's certainly not fast. And it's a two-man job. Think about it for a second. You've got to get 190 pounds. Let's say Jesus weighs 190 pounds. I don't know how much he weighed, but let's just use that. He's on a cross. You've got to get him off that cross. You've got to get him down, and he's a bloody mess. And it's really a two-man job. And John's gospel, because you know, we, we know that John likes to name names, right? In John's gospel, he tells us that the other man that helps Joseph is Nicodemus. And so Joseph and Nicodemus work together. But, but remember, this isn't easy. 
It starts with removing Jesus from the cross. The Bible doesn't tell us if Joseph and Nicodemus had to get that body off that cross, which would be a lot, or if the Romans got him off that cross and just turned his body over. We don't know. Either way, it's a mess of a process. Then they had to transport that body to a tomb somehow. And then they're going to have to anoint Jesus' body with oil and spices and myrrh and wrap him in linen and get everything done. John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus shows up to this whole thing carrying 75 pounds of oil and spices and fragrances like myrrh that were going to be used in this burial process. So look at verse 59. It says, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Joseph puts Jesus in the tomb that was meant for him. There's a tomb that he, was, he, he had cut for him and his family, never before been used. And he puts Jesus in the tomb that was meant for him. Why? Well, there's potentially a couple reasons why they did this. First, he probably did it out of respect, out of honor for Jesus, the one whom he follows. Second, he probably puts him in this tomb because of the tomb's proximity to the cross and the expediency of the preparation. They only have three hours to get everything done that needed to be done. John's account says, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So probably out of nearness and probably ease due to Passover starting in just a few hours, they have, might have felt this incredible rush like, hey, what are we going to do? I don't know. Uh, I got a tomb right here. That's awesome. Let's use that tomb. Hey, Nick, let's go over there. Haul the body over there. Let's put him in there. And Joseph, though, he's a wealthy guy, so he's like, well, that's my tomb, and, but you know what? We've got this body that weighs a lot. We've got all these spices that weigh a lot. We've got a lot to do with a little bit of time. Let's just put them in there. But what's interesting is this very decision, as rushed as it was, actually fulfills Isaiah 53.9, one of the prophecies. It says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here's Jesus being crucified between two thieves, two criminals, and he is going to be buried most likely in a common grave, in a group grave with all three of them. They're just going to take all three bodies and just throw them in a grave someplace. And yet it says, with the rich man in his death. So Joseph, the rich man, taking him to his tomb. Because in those days, if you've got an unused, private, family tomb in that location, you got some cash. You've got some money. And it fulfills that prophecy. And so in verse 60, it continues. It says, He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. I was in Israel. That's the stone. I don't know about you, every show I ever saw, every movie I ever saw had this big 10-foot stone that got rolled in front. And so when they showed me, if you know me at all, you're not, this, none of this is going to surprise you, they showed me this stone, and I'm like, that's not it. 
Like, that can't be it. That is way too small. And the guy's like, oh, really? Try to move it. So Pastor Dan and I and three other guys tried to move that stone. It's 4,500 pounds. Uh, it didn't move, by the way. I mean, I know it's hard to tell with this physique. It didn't move at all. So I asked the guy, I said, why do they always show this big, massive rock? He says, I have no idea. Because a car-sized stone weighs 89,500 pounds. It would take so many animals to move that stone. And I said, well, that, that, it, that's just mind-blowing. But he said, also, he goes, I don't know why they do that, because in caves where you're going to bury a body, you cut holes that are very small. And I said, why? And he goes, because you're trying to make sure the smell doesn't get out. So you cut a small hole just big enough for a couple ladies to get in, prep the body, and get out, and then you only have to seal a small hole. Why would you ever cut a hole this big? You know, th that doesn't make any sense. And I thought, huh, they lied to me in the movies. You know, like, I had no idea. And so what happens here in verse 61, it says, the ladies are watching this whole thing. It says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So this is how they know where to go on Sunday morning. In fact, look at how Luke describes this in Luke 23. It says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. See the strange phrase there? The guys brought 75 pounds. And the lady said, hmm, they went home and bought more spices. And, they, and it says they saw the way his body was laid. Remember that phrase, because we're going to talk about that in just a second. And so now, as often happens, when things go wrong, fear begins to set in to the other players in this story. Look at verse 62. It says the next day, the one after preparation day, so not Friday, but Saturday, the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. And people are beginning to ask the question, is there anything else we need to do? That's what they're asking. But when they ask the question, is there anything else I need to do? They're not trying to be helpful. It's not out of concern for the body. This is straight up fear. Look at verse 63. It says, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So if you've ever wondered if some of the people following Jesus were disingenuous, that perhaps there were some people following Jesus who were not as authentic as they could be, here's your proof. Because these Religious leaders who were kind of sneaking around the edges as these crowds moved as Jesus was teaching, they begin to remember Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, where it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. 
and that he must be killed and, here it comes, on the third day, be raised to life. And then they remember he said the same thing in Matthew chapter 17. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and here it comes. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And then they remember Matthew chapter 20. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And here it comes. On the third day, he will be raised to life. This whole third day thing is starting to ring repeatedly in their ears now. He has taught about this over and over and over again. And they start thinking, if something happens to Jesus' body, the only thing worse in their minds than Jesus propagating the claim that he was the Messiah would be for his body to disappear and for the disciples to spin a narrative that Jesus isn't just a Messiah. He's a resurrected Messiah. And so the religious leaders go, we cannot have that. We can't have that. And so here's the irony. On the Sabbath, like the actual Sabbath, these guys go to Pilate. You think, why does that matter? Where does Pilate live in Jerusalem? The Praetorium. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's in the Antonia Fortress. You know the place where these guys wouldn't step foot in? They wouldn't step in because if I step in there, I'm going to become unclean for the Passover festival. But you know what? They're certainly willing to step in now. Church, that's called situational ethics. That's what that is. Because if they step in there, they're going to be breaking the Sabbath in order to get Pilate to do something to protect the tomb. And they end up talking Pilate into, into putting an official seal on the tomb and placing guards there for the rest of Saturday all the way to Sunday morning. And so finally, look at verse 28, verse 1. By the way, that's the final chapter of the book. Right? You know, we're, we're so close. We're a couple weeks away. Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Mark's account of this even tells us why they went. Mark 16, 1, which I'll put on the screens, says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Solomon bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So apparently, in the rush to get everything done before the Sabbath starts, the dudes didn't do it right. Imagine that, right? Shocker! Both Marys were watching what was going on. They're sitting across the tomb watching these two guys. You know, you know they're rolling their eyes going, seriously, guys? Seriously, that's how you're going to do it? Y'all did that way too fast? Y'all did that way too slow? You know what? Forget it. <laughs> Me and the ladies, we'll come back. We'll do it right. We'll just come back after the Sabbath. Does that sound about right? Okay. Happy Father's Day, guys. But that's, I mean, that's just how it worked out. And so the first question in this passage, that's the easiest question that most people ask, and most people ask no other question beyond this question of the text is, what happened to Jesus' body between the cross and the tomb? That's where people stop. 
So his body is on the cross by 3 p.m. He's off the cross in the tomb by 6 p.m. He's in the tomb the rest of Friday, all day Saturday, and first thing Sunday morning, Jesus rises from the dead. That's where his body was. But here's the question we have now. What about a spirit? You know, we know where his body is. That's the easy question. But what about his spirit? What happens then? Because Pastor James showed us last week, Matthew 27, 50, when Jesus was on the cross, it says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. In Luke chapter 23, it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So if that's the case, what does the Bible say about his spirit for these three days? Now, as we begin to walk this road, I need to be a little careful about where the Bible is clear and where there are gaps. Because truthfully, there's not a ton of info on what happens for these three days. There are fragments that we have to put those pieces together as best we can. And to be honest with you, church history has not helped us. Sometimes it does. In this case, it has not. And I'll explain that in just a few minutes. So here's where, where we need to start. Ready? Thank you. There's one person ready. Like, <laughs> how is someone saved? You know, if, you th if we have to start there, how is someone saved? That's the question. And I think it's pretty clear that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. Thank you. First service, not so good. <laughs> Second service, I hope, gets it too. Yeah, so by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's Acts chapter 4. It's pretty clear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So we are saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So then the question becomes, how was Adam saved? See how it's getting a little trickier now? How's Adam saved? Like, how was Noah saved? Ruth, David, Abraham? How are any of those Old Testament characters saved? Because if salvation is by faith in Jesus, and Jesus obviously didn't come to earth until the whole manger thing in Bethlehem, how then are Old Testament saints saved? And the answer to that is, they believed by faith. It is always faith. Just like we believe by faith in what Jesus has done, they believe by faith in the one who will do something. That's the difference. So for example, did Adam understand who Jesus was? No. But if you read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all Adam knew was that one day there would be a he. There would be a singular male pronoun, and he would come, and he would deliver the world, and Adam believed in the he. In, in fact, he believed so much that he called his wife's name Eve because from her would come all the living. So did Noah understand who Jesus was? No, he didn't know who Jesus was. All he knew is that God said, judgment's coming and you need to build a boat because it's going to rain. And the first thing Noah said was, what's rain? 
right? Because it has not rained. Uh, up until that point, God watered the, the world from the ground up. No rain had ever existed. And so he's like, I don't know what rain is, but I'm going to build a boat. I will build a boat out of faith. And I believe in the plan of God as revealed to me at this time. He had faith. Well, did David believe in Jesus? No, not technically speaking, but David knew that from him would come a he, and that he is going to rule and reign on the throne forever. He had faith in the he that is to come. Well, what about Abraham? Did he understand who Jesus was? No. Abraham knew that from his family tree, one would come who would be a blessing to the entire world. He believed in the he that is to come. And you're like, why is any of this significant? You'll see in just a moment. Because in the Old Testament, those who died believing in God's provision as they knew it at the time went and enjoyed a place called, in your Bible, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's lap, or what's also called paradise. Those are all the same thing. And that is located, that place is located in the realm of Hades. Now, when I say Hades, some of you are like, um, yeah, what? Because you have to be careful when you say Hades, because most people think hell and Hades is the same thing. No, Hades is a realm. That's different. Hades is not referencing hell, but it's referencing the place of the dead. It's, it's a place where they go to the grave. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. And so as, uh, maybe to help you better understand this concept, turn over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I'm actually going to teach this a little different than I did first service to try to help you understand. I'm going to teach the concept on the front end. We'll read the passage, and then I'll teach it a second time on the back end. So think of this stage as Hades, okay? And the drum cage is hell. And some of you just said, amen, right? <laughs> and so that would be uh, the place of torment, your Bible calls it, <laughs> the drummers in the room are, are shaking their heads. Okay, so think this stage is the realm of Hades, and this is the place of torment, and over here in the keys is paradise, with a gap between the two that you cannot cross. Okay, let's read Luke chapter 16. This is what it says. It's about a guy named Lazarus. And uh, this isn't some random parable with the truth thrown alongside. Oh, no. This is a description that has real-world implications. And starting in verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or Abraham's lap or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And so Lazarus here in the Old Testament, is, he's portrayed as an Old Testament saint is what he's being portrayed as. Nothing more is said about the rich guy. Verse 23, and in Hades, he raised his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms or bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. 
you get the picture of the contrast that's being painted here? Verse 25, it says, But Abraham, this is Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I've got five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What a fascinating passage. So Hades... The Hadean realm has a place of torment and a place called Abraham's bosom or lap or what Jesus calls paradise. So Hades includes the place of paradise and this place of torment with an unpassable gap between them. And this Hadean realm is clearly different than what is described at the end of the book of Revelation when things get remade. So now let's go down another level for a second if I haven't messed with your thinking yet at all. When Jesus died, did he go to hell? Because church history, certain traditions have taught that. Did Jesus suffer pain and torment as he passed through hell? Like did Jesus battle Satan for the keys of the kingdom? Because we've, historically, we've not gotten a lot of help from, from the early church fathers, especially in the creeds like the Apostles' Creed. I grew up memorizing the Apostles' Creed. But the problem is, by the way, I believe in the Apostles' Creed, so, uh, okay, so like, don't throw rocks at me. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed has morphed over time. You could go home and Google it and see how it's morphed over time. Currently, right now, the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. That's what the current says. It used to say he descended into Hades. Now it says hell. But Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. So which is it? I mean, is he in hell? Is he in paradise? I mean, did Jesus descend into hell? Or did he immediately go into paradise with the thief on the cross? Which is it? Well, here's the problem. Words over time, sometimes their meaning changes. I know that's a shocker to us all, but sometimes that happens. Words change in their meaning. And depending right now in this room, depending on the generation to which you belong, the words I'm about to say are going to mean something different to you than the generation sitting right next to you. So if I say cool or bad or gay or swell 
or flavor or crush, those could mean a number of different things because the meaning has changed over time. And unfortunately, the word Hades, that was the word originally associated with the Apostles' Creed, originally had this meaning of the grave or the place of the dead or Sheol. Originally, Hades and hell were not the same thing, but over time, it's morphed to mean the same thing today in our church understanding. And so, did Jesus descend into Hades? Yes, as long as your definition of Hades means the grave or the place of the dead. Did he come to the stage? Yes, he did. He got on the stage. That's where he came. It, he didn't go into the drum cage. Some of you just said again, amen. Right? You know, that's not where he was. And for instance, in Acts chapter 2, it says, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Peter quotes something that King David says. So not only did King David affirm it, Peter quotes it and reaffirms it. And so did Jesus go to Hades? Yes, but not hell. And some of you are like, my mind is... Warped. And I'm like, well, the fathers asked for this sermon. So, right, this is, a, this is their gift from me to you. But that's not all. So with all that said, Jesus seems to have died with the assurance of being reunited with his father in paradise, in glory, with no purgatory, with no visit to hell, with no battle with Satan, with no fighting for the keys of the kingdom, with no additional punishment whatsoever. In fact, on the cross, Jesus says what? It is finished, which means it is done definitively. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And so then the question becomes, what about us? What about, how does this impact us? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So the Bible seems to communicate clearly that there are no second chances. Salvation is the work of Jesus on the cross and the cross alone. It is finished, demonstrates where redemption is found, and it demonstrates how it's accomplished. And so we too right now, when we die, we go to the keys of the drum cage. Some of you are like, ooh, I'm not going to hell now, right? You know? uh, but that's what happens. We go to a place of torment or we go to paradise. That's what happens when we die now. But things will change. So if you're not confused enough at this point, according to Revelation chapter 20, it says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into where? The lake of fire. Yeah, the, the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And verse 15 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So at the end of all things, the Hadean realm, the stage, is emptied of all people who are there. And they go forever now to what I call hell 2.0, right? They go to the lake of fire. They go to the lake of burning sulfur. And at the end of all things, according to Revelation 21, we now see heaven 2.0. And 
It says there, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There's no gap. And while there's plenty more theologically we could talk about here, I'm going to stop here because if we start this process, we could just get lost in the weeds. We could take rabbit trails all over the place. And so if you want to talk more about this, if this has messed with you at all, I'll be happy to talk with you down front. Pastor James is over here. He would love to talk to you about this too. Um, Pastor Dan and, and Pastor Alex are out of town. They were smart this Sunday. But uh, we'd love to talk with you more about that. Because I want to stop here because I think there's a greater point And I don't want us to miss it this morning. Here's the good news. What happens when we die? Well, if we are in Christ, then having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Amen? Yeah, yeah. And and if we are in Christ, there is no condemnation whatsoever. Amen? Yeah, and if we're in Christ, we have assurance that faith comes through Jesus. And if we have the Son, we have life. Yeah, that's the good news. We have life. We also know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, meaning die in Jesus, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So as a believer, we know that the day we pass away, we immediately slip into the presence of God in heaven, waiting for the day when Jesus is going to return to rule and reign forever. That's fantastic news. But there's also bad news. Because those who have rejected Jesus Christ and reject him as the only means of salvation, there is no back door. There is no side door. There's no other way in but by the name of Christ and Christ alone. And so, friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus, you need to understand the clear teaching of the word of God not the opinions of men, you got to read your Bible. There's no alternative payment for, for sin other than death. Either we die or Jesus dies in my place. And if you've rejected him, you've rejected the only Savior who has a means by which to pay for your sin. And so if we come back to the context of Matthew chapter 27, what's the point? The point is, The battle that Jesus fought is over. The battle is over. There's no additional work that has to be done. There is no ongoing redemption. There is no ongoing merit that we need to find. Baptism doesn't get me in. Communion doesn't get me in. Those are important things. But but when Jesus Christ died on that cross, it is finished. It's done. It's over. And when they put Jesus in the grave, the whole redemptive plan of God was fulfilled in a bloody cross, and it will be affirmed by an empty tomb. 
And as we look at what Jesus has done, I want you to know he is a savior that can be trusted. He's a savior that can be trusted because he's faithful and because he's paid the ultimate price for us because he died on the cross for our sin of the death and eternal separation from God that we deserved and yet we did not receive. And thanks be to God he did it. Because apart from him, we have no hope. Because apart from him, we have no joy. And apart from him, we have no peace. Apart from him, we have absolutely nothing. That's the good news, church. That's the good news, that Jesus is my Savior. The good news is that Jesus is my healer. The good news is that Jesus is my sanctifier in church. The good news is Jesus Christ is my returning king. Amen? Amen. I think that's the last days you never knew.